ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for coming along. This week, we're heading to the top end where tourism is booming in the dry season and travellers stopping at an outback homestead are being entertained by a master whipcracker. We'll meet a man who's revisiting his childhood hobby, making perfect and precise model aeroplanes by hand and donating them to a regional aviation museum. And we'll visit a passion fruit farm where longtime growers are working with plant breeders to develop new varieties of the fruit to ensure they remain a favourite for generations to come. Back in the 50s, it was sort of bred for the pavlova lovers, but then as years have gone by, we tried to develop varieties that eat on their own, like it doesn't have to be added to some other product. Passion fruit growing sort of gets into you a little bit. I've been growing now for, this is probably 33 years I've been doing it. It's very challenging to grow good passion fruit, and it's a beautiful fruit to eat. True that. You can't beat a passion fruit topped pav or a passion fruit sponge cake. We'll hear more about the efforts to preserve the fruit's future in Australia. That is coming up. First today, life on the land comes with its challenges, but for women in the outback, it's also providing inspiration. Rural painters are taking on the art world one canvas at a time, as Victoria Pangili reports. The red dirt of southwest Queensland isn't just a playground for Shona Underwood, it's also her muse. The grazier lives on a sprawling cattle station around 10 hours west of Brisbane. When she's not tending to her stock or balancing station duties, she's in the studio painting. I always keep my landscapes quite dull in my works because I often do quite bold pieces where there is, there's a main feature. It's just the openness, the space, the yellow, the gold, the sun, the gold on the grass. The openness out here, I guess, is quite breathtaking. I do find it incredibly inspiring. The artist draws inspiration from the ups and downs of life on the land. It can be a song, it can be the smell of the dry season coming, dry and wet season, I'm talking from the Northern Territory. It can be a story that somebody has told me. It can be something really big or something really small that gives me a rush of blood and I am so inspired to run into the studio and something magic happens. And you need that inspiration for something magic to happen. It was a close call with death that spurred her to pick up the palette. I was delivering census forms and someone else was driving and we rolled, the vehicle rolled, rolled about three times, I think, and it was a very traumatic accident. By the time Shona Underwood had crawled away from the wreckage, she realised she was badly injured. Her spine had broken in multiple places, forcing her to be housebound for months. It was really, really challenging because I'm such a physical person. I struggled to keep still. I guess that's why I started painting again. It, it's stimulating and uh, you really do have to think. And it's also very therapeutic. There were positive things that came out of it. My appreciation for life and my body and everything that I can do has just gone up. Ten years on, her artwork has become an income stream, selling to buyers in the United States, Hong Kong and Europe. You always hear about the poor artists, but it's never been that way for me. I've, I've certainly I've had to rely on my art and nothing else a couple of times in my life. And it's been uh, such a blessing that I'm be, I'm able to make a living out of my two hands. I really want 
the people out there that have my art to have something really, really special and really genuine. Around 100 kilometres up the road, Lynn Barnes has her own art gallery in Coolpe, showcasing her love of the land. Her art is held in private and corporate collections around the world. The play of colour during the day, the, the, the colour in the early morning when you've got that pale pink light in the sky, as opposed to the harshness of, of midday, and then the, the beautiful softness of the of the evening where the reds really come out in the soil. Lynn Barnes's sweeping, vibrant landscape pieces chart the history of the region, which is often referred to as Heartbreak Corner. You know, it, it's dry more times here than it's a good season. I mean, a, a lot of my friends who are on the on properties around here say that it's um, planned for two good years in ten. And I think back you know, in the early days of settlement in this area, you know, there were a lot of fortunes won and lost. I mean, people, you know, would, would take up runs out here and, and then something, you know, a drought would come. And, and so I think the term heartbreak corner, I don't know who coined it, but it just has stuck over the ages. But I, I think it's a, a bit sad, really, because it, to my mind, it's not an area of heartbreak. It's an area of great opportunity and, and great beauty. Yeah, I think over the years probably it's lost that, um, that reputation. Steve Keddie remembers the first time he flew in an aeroplane, a moment that started a lifelong passion for aviation. When I was five years old, I took my first ride in an aeroplane. I think it was a DC-4, because in those days you could go up to the cockpit as a little kid and even sit on a pilot's lap, which is frowned on these days. And so it would have been either a Viscount or a DC-4, and I don't think there was a room in a Viscount for that, so it was probably a DC-4. So I've always had an interest in aviation. My dad was interested in aviation as well. He wasn't in the industry, but he, he just loved aeroplanes. And so whenever we were going from a country town to the big smoke, if there was an airport, he would drive by it on the off chance he would see something coming into land or take off. And it was a small model aircraft that belonged to his father that sparked an interest in making his own model aeroplanes. But in his office, he had a little plastic model of a, a tiger moth. And we moved several times during my childhood. And every time we moved, a little bit more got broken. But it was his pride and possession, this tiger moth sitting up there. When I was in my early teens, my father then bought me some little balsa wood model aeroplanes because uh, it was something we had in common. We didn't always see eye to eye, Dad and I, but... Uh, he would buy these small balsa wood models and then we would sit down and we would make them. Then in my young adult years, I started on building uh, plastic model aeroplane kits. The fun came in making them. Once I had them built, I had all these model aeroplanes I didn't know what to do with. So I would give them away to things like markets or church fates or, or whatever. You know, I wasn't interested in getting money back for them, so I gave them away. There was a bit of a, a pause in my model building as a uh, you know, family man, raising kids, etc., paying off all the mortgage. But then when I retired from secular work about nine years ago, I started getting back into it. I was making uh, off-the-shelf model balsa aeroplane kits initially, and then I decided I'd, I'd move on and I'll make some planes that I couldn't get as kits, and I'll start from scratch. Hello, I'm Justin Hunsdale. I'm chatting with Steve Keddy who's not only reacquainted himself with his childhood hobby of making model aeroplanes from kits, but he's made the big leap 
to making his own models from scratch, starting with a Hawker Hurricane. I simply had plans for a smaller version of the model, but then I had it photocopied up to the size that I wanted, and the plans included the, the profiles for all the, the frames for the fuselage, uh, the wing layout, the ribs, etc. And so I would photocopy those, cut out the little sections and use them as templates to lay on sheets of balsa wood and then mark with a pen around the template and then use a razor blade to cut them all out. I'd also have a look at uh, as many photos as I could on the internet uh, to uh, just look at the detail, just That's to the see... The part about what, making what a model aeroplane. Uh, fending off the wife saying, are you still doing that? The, the ones I'm making from scratch take about six to seven months, and that's not, you know, working full time on it. Sometimes you you cut something up and you then you've got to glue it together, and then the glue takes several hours to uh, to cure. So you you do a bit, and that's it for the rest of the day. And you don't necessarily work on it every day. You just chip at it every now and again. These days, Steve is the resident model plane maker at the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society at Shell Harbour Airport in the New South Wales Illawarra region. He's accumulated a huge collection of models, painstakingly made by hand, that are on display here at the Haas Museum. I started off with aeroplanes that I was either working on or have always liked, things like Neptunes or, or Caribous, etc. But then it was just uh, a challenge, you know, OK, I think I'll have a go at one of those, because every, every aeroplane that I make, I'm starting from scratch and each aeroplane has its own little intricacies. Probably the hardest one that I built was the Grumman Tracker because uh, it was very small, it was relatively small and compact and I built it with the folding wings as well and that was tricky. Probably the hardest part even then on making that model was, was masking up for the painting because you're trying to mask up these tiny little areas so you can do spray painting. That's the other thing. Yeah, there's the, the onus on you is to make these planes look identical to how they are in their original form. Is that, how hard is that to do? Not overly hard. If you're talking about paint schemes, uh, there's plenty of photos on the internet that give me an idea of what the paint was like. I also uh, look for plans like front side and plan view ele you know, elevations on the internet so that I can get the profiles as close as I can. And then I use the photos to look for all the little small details like pedo tubes or little scoops or air vents and things like that around the place. They're so cool to look at. Is that, is that the main appeal for you, Steve? The fact that it's just like, here's this miniature version of the planes that everyone knows. Is that the appeal? Uh, yes, I think so. And it, it's just the satisfaction of making it. Usually, after, after I've made it, or even before I finish making it, I've got the next one sort of starting in my head sort of thing and so the enjoyment really comes out of making it and then giving it to somebody or, or for somebody else to see. And there's so many different specialties out here at Haas of people who have worked in the aviation industry or like yourself worked in the electronics field. Are you the only model maker out here? Oh no there's uh, at least a couple of others that I know. Uh, one of them's a tour guide his name's Tom and he, uh, he builds little uh, plastic ones and the paint job on those is quite superb. It's nice to sort of leave something positive behind, you know. The greatest enjoyment I get is actually making it and achieving it. I'm, I'm not sort of after any sort of fame or fortune or legacy or anything like that. It's just, it's just being able to make it and, and doing the best job as I can and hope, hopefully it, it looks realistic. 
Model maker Steve Keddy talking to Justin Huntsdale at the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society at Shell Harbour Airport in the New South Wales Illawarra region. You can see more on that story, including a slideshow of Steve at work carefully handcrafting the tiny model aircraft. You'll find it on the RN website, abc.net.au slash RN. Just search for A Big Country. I'm Claire Jasper with you for A Big Country on RN. Still to come, we'll meet a whipcracker who's using his record-breaking skills to entertain and not just a delicious topping for pavlova, Australian passion fruit are delicious to eat on their own. And we'll hear of plans to boost the Aussie crop by developing new varieties of the fruit. Oh, they're really big, aren't they? That's the size you want. The growers like it because real small fruit is very expensive to harvest. On Queensland's Sunshine Coast, Keith Paxton is a long-time grower of passion fruit. You've got your trusty pen knife here. You open that up. Give it a try. Yum. That's delicious just by itself. What do most of the passion fruit get consumed as now? I can't help but think of a delicious pavlova pavlova (laughs) dripping with passion fruit and fruit salad. Well, back in the 50s, it was sort of bread for the pavlova lovers. But then as years have gone by, we tried to develop varieties that eat on their own, like it doesn't have to be added to some other product. So it stands alone. That's exactly right. These days, he's joined by his daughter, Megan Crowhurst, and her husband, Dave, who run the nursery side of this fruit farm. Over his many years of growing passion fruit, Keith has seen passion fruit consumption ebb and flow, and varieties of the fruit come and go. Passion fruit growing sort of gets into you a little bit. I've been growing now for, this is probably 33 years I've been doing it. It's very challenging to grow good passion fruit, and it's a beautiful fruit to eat. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm chatting to Keith Paxton about some of the challenges facing the passion fruit industry in Australia. We've got a couple of really important issues at the moment facing us. Our current varieties are getting a bit tired and a bit old, and they're starting to lose their vigour. So we have, over the years, since the late 90s, had abundant breeding program from levies and government funding as well. We have two varieties that we bred in that time but they're back in the early days and they're the varieties Misty Gem and Sweetheart that are now getting a little bit past their date. Breeding programs since then haven't sort of brought up anything that stands out and we're about to begin a new program with Mo. He's a very successful plant breeder in in his own right. He has done a lot of work with macadamias. We have a lot of material that we can use to cross with, but it's very difficult to get a variety that suits all areas. We're very climatic sensitive. You get a variety that may suit one area but not suit another because passion fruit's grown from Cooktown to down in northern New South Wales. The three main varieties is Pandora, which is a Panama, and there are other Panama selections up north, McGuffey's Red and Lakeland Special, that are quite good, and they do well up in the north. Misty Gem also does very well up in the north, but unfortunately it's sort of lost its vigour down here. And Sweetheart, which has been our main variety for many years as well, it's also lost a bit of its vigour. And we're looking for a little bit larger fruit. It has to have good shelf life, be full of pulp, and a certain level of sweetness and sugars and acidity as well. Uh, Acidity sort of helps keep the fruit. So it's a five-year project funded by Horde Innovation and headed by Dr Mobashwa Alam from the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation. This is really important because the Australian passion fruit industry is worth around $24 million a year and there's 130 commercial growers and they produce more than 5,000 tonnes of fruit. 
So the aim of this is to create new opportunities and boost profitability. Megan and Dave, tell me what you'd like to see coming out because, Dave, you were telling me there's problems at the moment with the tips of some of these plants develop a blind tip. Yeah, that's right. So it's a genetic defect or issue with the plant. So hopefully with Mo's help and possibly with new varieties, we're going to eliminate that problem. When you say blind tip, can you describe what that is? So for example, this is a misty gem. So you can see that this is a grafted variety, obviously. So it's grafted onto a Panama Pandora. And as it grows, it has that fluffy little tip, produces the new growth. Now a blind tip basically looks like that. So it just looks like a leaf and a bit of a stem. So it stops growing essentially. So once it starts doing that, then normally if we have one of those in the field, we'll remove it and replace it. How much do you grow in terms of plants for the industry? We supply New South Wales and Queensland, primary producers predominantly. We'll grow anything between 60 to 80,000 vines, all varieties that farmers request. What we try and do is give them as many options as they can possibly have to be successful in the field. Yeah, so doing it for the farmers. Why is this new research to find new varieties so important? So there's basically a future in passion fruit. As Keith was saying before, the criteria of passion fruit is quite extensive. You have to have colour, you have to have fragrance, flavour. All of the criteria needs to be ticked off. The varieties that we're growing at the moment, unfortunately, have basically passed their use-by date. Unbelievably important to keep the future of the industry. We're facing more challenges now with labour. We do need government to make policy that supports our labour force and keeps us because most of our workers are sort of itinerant workers. One of the other things that's uh, a real challenge is that we also got imports, the possibility of imports coming into the country. So we do need to get going with our varietal material and improve it. There is an application from Vietnam to export passion fruit into Australia. They're a huge producer, like far greater than what we do. The thing that we have to do is improve our end of the field and provide consumers with something that they're happy with. So we've come out to the field now and Dr Mo Alam from the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation has joined me here with Keith Paxton in the rows of passion fruit. So how excited are you about this program? So I'm really excited uh, with this program because we know that industry is facing few problems. So I'm excited to solve those problems. And what are the major challenges as you see it? lack of new varieties for the industry. Most of the cultivars currently the industry is using, mainly Misty Jam and uh, Sweetheart, the yield is declining and now we are interested to develop new varieties within short time because we have those technologies at UQ so we want to use genomics and, and even in future I would like to use artificial intelligence in the, in the breeding program to accelerate the breeding program. I'm Nathan Whippy Griggs. I'm here at Mataranka Homestead and my job here is doing some whip cracking for the tourists and just giving, you know, having a good time cracking whips. Nathan Griggs not only has an unusual position description, he also holds some interesting world records. Yeah, so I've got a few Guinness World Records. I've got five in total, one that I've broken three times now. The ones I hold, I've got the longest whip in the world at 100 metres long. It's actually just over 100 metres, 100.47 metres. Then I've got most whip cracks in a minute with one hand at uh, 359 cracks in a minute. And then the record I've broken three times now 
is the most whip cracks in a minute with two whips. That's currently at 697 cracks in a minute. I'm Samantha Dick, and I've come along to Mataranka Homestead in the Northern Territory. During the dry season, crowds of tourists visit the homestead near the popular hot springs, and many stay on to watch as Nathan Griggs shares his skills, performing a whip-cracking show here six nights a week. He has a few whip-cracking tricks and can even whip to song requests from the audience. He first picked up a whip as a teenager. I started cracking whips actually in the Northern Territory when I was 14. At the time, we were travelling, me, mum and dad, and my older sisters, three of them. And we were in a bus and we were relocating from WA and as a family, that mum and dad decided to jump in a bus and do a bit of a tour of the top end here. As we were coming through the Northern Territory, I'd seen a bloke cracking a whip at Timber Creek. I thought it was pretty cool. And after that, I went out and bought a whip. Yeah, haven't put them down since really. And I've actually been making whips nearly as long as I've been cracking whips. Uh, we ended up in New South Wales for a few years. That's where mum and dad decided to buy a property there. But yeah, when I was 19, I got in my ute and bugged off back up to the top end here because yeah, I knew I loved it from when I was a kid. It's just the whole atmosphere up here, the, the nice weather, the people, and um, just the countryside. I love it. And do you know much about how whip cracking became popular in Australia? Over the years, it's, it's increased in popularity. Um, so back in the day, I, I think a lot of old, old folk talk about how it used to be everywhere and everybody knew how to crack a whip. And then it was sort of, I think, it, I felt like it died for a bit, you know, early 2000s and that. And then it sort of, I feel like it's just picked up a, quite a bit in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, and I think that's the fact of, you know, it's more seen through agricultural shows. There's a few competitions being held. And there's a few folks like myself getting out there and, and cracking some whips and putting on some entertainment. And with what I do, I try and tailor my show for families and kids and that, get them involved. And it gets the kids doing something outdoors and, and that's what gives them something to do. They, parents buy them a whip. You'll notice it through the top end here. When the tourist season hits proper, all the caravans have got no whips cracking because <laughs> it's waking everybody up at night. So yeah, but end of the day, it's, it's a good thing for for people to get out there and crack a whip doing something a bit different. If you're tempted to give whip cracking a go, Nathan Griggs says it's important to understand your whip and how it works. I always recommend actually learning a little bit how to make a whip as well as just cracking it because you, you hear a lot of people, they'll go, oh, a good whip will last a lifetime. It's, it's not really the case. There's always maintenance to be done and like everything, it wears out. So. If, you're not, if your whip's not working at its optimal performance, it's going to make it harder to learn the certain tricks. So, yeah, if you're getting into it, um, get a good set of whips, but um, also just have basic knowledge on how to, how to fix your whip up and the mechanics of how it actually works and how it cracks. How a whip cracks, um, the design of the whip um, starts off like quite thick and then runs uh, thinner, so it's on a taper the whole way down. When you throw the whip out at a certain angle, it puts a loop into that and that travels down the whip. Um, and because it's on a taper, it's increasing in momentum and that force is being put, forced into a, um, a smaller area. When that flicks out at the end, it's actually breaking the speed of sound. So when a whip cracks, it's breaking the speed of sound. You know, a big loud crack should be 
hitting about 1500k an hour, the tip of the whip. And as for the nickname Whippy... So the story of how my name come about, I don't know, Whippy, it goes whip cracking, I think, but um, even the number plates on my truck are Whippy. I don't know how I managed to get them, but, um, yeah, I would have thought a uh, ice cream truck would have had those by now. But, um, yeah, got the Whippy plates in the truck, but, um, yeah, that's obviously after I got the name. But um, I think it was just one night, we were down here actually at the, at the Mataranka homestead, one of the fellas, he just forgot my name. So he just went, hey, Whippy, and then it just stuck. So yeah, that's how it come about. But I think it's, it's a very Aussie thing. Everybody's got to have a nickname, don't they? Nathan Whippy Griggs, who was putting on a show at the Mataranka Homestead in the Northern Territory, where he spoke to reporter Samantha Dick. More on that story, including a video of Nathan in action with his whip. You'll find it on the RN homepage. Just look for A Big Country under the Programs tab. That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper. I'll be back next week with more great stories from regional Australia. Talk to you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.